Why did the eternal Son of God have to become a man? It's a good question, and it connects two very important things, the person of Jesus Christ and his work. Sound a bit too theological? It's really quite simple. Redemption is a family matter, so the price to redeem us had to be paid by our own flesh and blood. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Reichen, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. We're continuing our series on the theme of salvation, called The Message of Salvation. We've been looking at God's answer to the vast problems of humanity. The message of salvation from sin and from death will be made clear as we see God's plan through the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. Phil, today's message focuses particularly on redemption. I think there are probably many people who don't really understand what that word means. Well, redemption is a a word that I think Christians often use without really understanding. It's a word that comes from the marketplace. It means the securing of a release by the payment of a price. In the Bible, redemption usually refers to slavery, being redeemed from slavery. Today, we might think of redeeming a coupon or something like that. It's the price you pay to get something back. And that's really at the heart of our salvation. We've been rescued from our sin and brought back into fellowship with God. Our salvation is a redemption. And that transaction took place on the cross. You talk today about redemption being a family matter. How does that work out in our salvation? Well, today, Mark, we're going to look at a wonderful story of redemption from the Old Testament. It's the story of Ruth. And in that story, you have to have a family member, and this was the biblical practice, to buy back land or to redeem somebody who is sold into slavery. It had to be a family member who had the right and responsibility of redemption. And we think of our own salvation. We see that same family principle at work. God sent his own son to share with us in our humanity. You see our own flesh and blood. And then this perfect man redeems us through his death so that we could become the children of God. So again, we're back to Christ's work on the cross. Thank you, Phil. Our message this week is in the book of Ruth. Turn to chapter 4 now, and let's listen to God's Word for us today. In our series on salvation, we turn this evening from rescue to redemption. Our previous study was about Israel's exodus from Egypt, and as he celebrated that great escape, Moses sang, "'The Lord has become my salvation.'" Then at the end of his song, Moses called Israel's salvation a redemption. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. Salvation means redemption as well as rescue. Of course, the same connection is drawn in the New Testament. For God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. And so to be saved in Christ is to be redeemed as well as rescued. Redemption is one very specific kind of salvation. The word comes from the marketplace. It's a commercial term used to describe salvation almost as a business transaction. Redemption is the securing of a release by the payment of of a ransom. 
Thus, there are always three parts to any redemption. First, the property that is lost and needs to be redeemed. Second, the price that must be paid to redeem it. And third, the person who is able and willing to serve as the Redeemer. The property that is lost, the price that must be paid, and the person who is willing to pay it. Now, there are many different types of redemption in the Old Testament. It was almost as if God wanted his people to have daily experience of redemption so that they would understand what salvation was all about. There was redemption of animals, there was redemption of slaves, even the redemption of the whole nation of Israel. In one way or another, they all contain these three elements, the property lost, the price to be paid, and the person to pay it. Now, of all the different types of redemption, perhaps the most commonly practiced was the redemption of land that had been lost or sold. And the most beautiful story about this kind of redemption, surely, is told in the book of Ruth. I encourage you to turn there now. We'll be referring to a number of things throughout the book. The story, if you know it at all, you know, begins in sadness. Through a tragic series of circumstances, a Jewish woman named Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth found themselves walking from Moab to Bethlehem. They had both lost their husbands. Not only was this a cause for sorrow, but it also left them without food or protection. The women were traveling to Bethlehem because it was Naomi's hometown. She had been away for more than a decade, and she had suffered so much during those years that when she straggled back into town, we see it at the end of Ruth chapter 1, people could hardly recognize her. Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant, she told them. Call me Mara, that is to say, bitter because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Now, in those days, the people of Israel still followed the biblical pattern for welfare, or perhaps we should call it workfare. The poor, and especially widows and aliens, were allowed to walk through the fields and gather whatever grain the harvesters left behind. And Ruth qualified on every count. She was a poor widow from Moab. And so this very enterprising young woman said to Naomi, let me go to the fields, this is chapter 2, verse 2, and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. When Naomi agreed, Ruth went out into the fields to glean barley behind the harvesters. And by this means, God provided her with some food. Yet Ruth was still in need of redemption. She only had enough food to live. She was still basically destitute. She had lost her husband, so she was still in sorrow. And also, Ruth faced danger. She was a stranger living in a strange land at a time when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Naomi feared what might happen to her when she was alone out in the fields. But all of these difficulties meant was that Ruth needed a redeemer. She was economically, emotionally, and socially in bondage, and yet she did not have the resources to redeem herself. Ruth's impoverishment should remind us of our own spiritual poverty. We, too, are in need of a Redeemer. That's what we've been saying throughout these sermons on salvation. We are sinners by nature. 
And sin always brings the kind of suffering and alienation that Ruth experienced. And even worse, sin brings such intense bondage that we cannot escape from it by ourselves. We can only be released by redemption. Thankfully, the message of salvation promises us what we need, the release from our sins. The New Testament offers us redemption in Jesus Christ, the one who releases us from sin. Remember what the Scripture says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And not only has Jesus redeemed us from sin itself, he has also redeemed us from all of its miserable consequences. He has released us from guilt, for in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And he has released us from God's wrath. The scripture says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, that is to say God's wrathful curse against our sin. And so in Jesus, we have a Redeemer who provides exactly the kind of redemption we need. He provides release from sin and from guilt and from wrath. The message of salvation is partly about this redemption. You know, there's a wonderful line about this in the hymn, O Zion, haste, your mission high fulfilling. The hymn ends with this chorus. It's really about the message of salvation. The chorus goes, publish glad tidings, tidings of peace, tidings of Jesus, redemption, and release. You see, the publication of the tidings of redemption and release through Jesus Christ is exactly what the message of salvation is all about. Now, as we have said, there are three requirements for redemption. One is the property which is lost and needs to be redeemed. And another is someone to serve as the Redeemer, and this is where Ruth's story really starts to get interesting. For in the providence of God, it so happened that Ruth ended up in the field of the most eligible bachelor in Bethlehem. The man's name was Boaz, and he was really everything a young girl could want in a husband. It was godly in his speech. He was obedient to God's word. He was generous with his possessions. He was pure in his sexual conduct. And to top it all off, Boaz was rich besides. The most important thing of all was that he was related to Naomi and therefore eligible to become Ruth's redeemer. This dramatic revelation comes at the end of the second chapter. Verse 20, when Ruth came home from the harvest, Naomi said to her, God has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead And she added, that man, Boaz, is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen, redeemers. Understand that redemption was always a family matter. The right and responsibility to redeem someone's land always fell to a close relative, a man called in Hebrew a goel, a kinsman redeemer. The law of God stipulated that the redemption of property was always to be carried out by the next of kin. So if an Israelite was in desperate financial straits, he could sell his field for a time. But the responsibility for redeeming that field fell to his kinsmen so that the man's name and property would never leave the family. 
was a way of God saying that the redemption of the man's land was to be carried out by those who had the greatest personal interest in redeeming it, his own flesh and blood. Now, the fact that a redeemer is always a kinsman yields an important insight about redemption in Jesus Christ. You see, like everything else in Scripture, the book of Ruth has to be understood in relation to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Especially so in this case, because Ruth and Boaz are very directly part of that redemptive history which culminates in the coming of Christ. This story is part of Jesus' family history. You may have noticed from the end of our reading that their great-grandson was King David, and of course Jesus was a son of David. The fact that Jesus is part of that genealogy reminds us to think of him as our kinsman redeemer. The right and the responsibility of redemption always rest on the shoulders of a close relative. Therefore, in order for our redemption to be accomplished, it was necessary for the eternal Son of God to become a man. The price to redeem us from sin had to be paid by our own flesh and blood, by a member of the family of humanity. Our redemption could never be accomplished by an angel or a beast or anything else except a perfect human being. And so you see that redemption is part of the reason that God, the eternal Son, became a man. Theologians call this the doctrine of the Incarnation. It simply means that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. He had a human nature as well as a divine nature. And in his true deity, he was the very God of very God. And at the very same time, by his genuine humanity, he was a man among men. Unless our Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us that the only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Perhaps the fullest explanation of the relationship between Christ's incarnation and our redemption is provided in Hebrews chapter 2, and perhaps it would be good for us to turn there as well. We're trying to understand the relationship between the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus, between his incarnation and our redemption. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, we read that both the one who makes men holy... This is Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. Both the one who makes men holy, that is Christ, and those who are being made holy, that is Christians, are of the same family, and so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now, here is a most remarkable truth. Jesus calls us his brothers and sisters because he is made of the very same stuff that we are. And then as we read on, we see that his reason for becoming God incarnate is to secure our freedom from sin and from guilt and from death and from the devil. Beginning at verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, 
and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. And you see in those verses that Jesus provides release from all of the things that we need to be released from, that is, from sin and from guilt and from death and everything else. And in order for Jesus to be our Redeemer, it was necessary for him to become our kinsman. He had to become a son of David as well as God the Son. And so Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. By his incarnation, he became our blood brother, the bone of our bone and the flesh of our flesh. And just because he was a real human being, he could purchase for us true redemption. Sometime in the 6th century, A man named Fortunatus wrote a hymn showing this connection between incarnation and redemption. And this is what the hymn says, The royal banners forward go, the cross shows forth redemption's flow, where he by whom our flesh was made, our ransom in his flesh has paid. And there you have it, our ransom in his flesh has paid. Redemption in Christ is kinsman redemption. Now the third thing redemption requires is the purchase price. In addition to the property to be redeemed and the person to redeem it, there is also the actual payment to be made. And it is at this point in Ruth's romantic adventure that there is an unexpected complication. What had happened was this. As Ruth went out to gather barley, Naomi gradually put one and one together and realized it was time for her to do a little matchmaking. And since Boaz was eligible to serve as a kinsman redeemer, the thing to do was for Ruth to get him to marry her. So she gave Ruth uh, the following instructions. This is back in the book of Ruth at the beginning of chapter 3. She said, Is not Boaz with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. And when he lies down, go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Now everything went according to plan. Ruth bathed and perfumed and dressed and then went to the threshing floor where she watched Boaz eat and drink and then lie down, as the scripture says, at the far end of the grain pile. Once everyone was asleep, she very quietly crept up and uncovered his feet and lay down beside him under the stars. You see, what Ruth was really doing was asking Boaz to redeem her. She was asking him to marry her and to buy Naomi's property and to raise up an heir for the family. There, under the stars, with her heart pounding, Ruth waited to see what would happen. In the middle of the night, Boaz suddenly awakened, only to discover, to his amazing surprise, that there was a woman lying at his feet and, in effect, that she was proposing marriage. When he demanded to know who she was, she said, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. 
This was the custom in those days. If a man was willing to serve as a redeemer, he would signal his intentions by spreading the corner of his blanket over the woman. Now, Boaz was more than willing to be the redeemer, but there was one complication. And that was that he had a rival. There was another man in town who was also eligible to redeem both Ruth and Naomi. And Boaz explained the situation to Ruth like this, Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem good, let him redeem. Now, since this other man was an even closer relative than Boaz, he had, in effect, the right of first refusal. He had the first choice of redemption. Well, Boaz was not the kind of man to sit around and simply wait for something to happen. And so when morning came, he went to the city gates to find the nearer kinsman. And when he saw the man, he gave a friendly greeting. He said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. When the man had taken his seat among the elders in the gates, Boaz very casually outlined the situation for him. He said, this is chapter 4, reading at the end of verse 3, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it. If you will redeem it, do so, but if you will not tell me, So I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. Now, this must have sounded like a golden opportunity, especially since Boaz was right there seeming to want to take advantage of it himself. Near kinsmen would have exclusive right to a prime piece of real estate. And after his initial outlay of capital, the property would be his to manage and eventually to pass on to his family, or so he thought. And so at once he said, I will redeem it. In fact, in the Hebrew, it's even more emphatic than that. I, I will redeem it to show his eagerness. But then Boaz, the skillful negotiator that he was, introduced a twist to the bargain. He said, on the day that you buy the land... You acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. The point of all that was this. On the day that the nearer kinsman acquired the land with all of its assets, he would also inherit several liabilities. He would be responsible to maintain Ruth and Naomi and to raise up an heir for them. You see, Boaz wanted this other kinsman to understand the high cost of redemption. Man may have assumed that the sale of land would come without any additional financial obligations, but in this case, he would be obligated to marry Ruth, a young woman who was almost certain to bear children, and therefore the field would never be his to keep. It would always belong to Ruth and to her children, Thus, instead of acquiring more property for himself, the Redeemer would have to invest his capital into someone else's estate. He had nothing to gain by becoming a Redeemer. It was only an opportunity for sacrifice. And in the end, as you can see, the high price of redemption made this nearer kinsman unwilling to be the Redeemer. When he realized that redemption was out of his price range, he said, I cannot redeem it. 
because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. And the reason that the man could not redeem was because he would not. He was unwilling to endanger his own estate, and so he renounced his right of redemption and said to Boaz, buy it yourself. Now you can see how this man's refusal to redeem emphasizes by way of contrast the sacrifice of Boaz, who was both able and willing to be the redeemer. He was able to redeem because he was a man of wealth and position, with fields and servants to spare. But more than that, he was willing to redeem. As soon as the other kinsman threw in his sandal on the deal, Boaz made a public declaration of his intent to redeem. He said to all the people there, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property and have also acquired Ruth as my wife. And in this we see that Boaz was willing to pay the full price of redemption. Now it is not hard to see that there are many similarities between the redemption that Boaz provided for Ruth and the redemption that God has provided for us in Jesus Christ. In both cases, there was property to be redeemed from its lost and sorry condition. In both cases, there was a person to redeem it, a close relative who was eligible to serve as the kinsman redeemer. And in both cases, the redeemer was willing personally to underwrite the whole cost of redemption. For there was a price that Jesus had to pay in order to purchase the souls of God's children from their bondage to sin. Whenever the New Testament speaks of our redemption, it invariably emphasizes how high that price was. Consider the great statement Jesus made about his redeeming work. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The price that Jesus paid to redeem us was his very life. Quite literally, it took a king's ransom to set us free from our sin. The life of the King of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ. The way that Jesus describes his saving work on our behalf is significant. It says he gave his life as a ransom for us. And really it's a way of saying that Jesus died in our place, giving up his life as the substitute for our sins. You know, there's an event from Israel's history which helps to illustrate what Jesus meant. In the year 54 B.C., the Roman general Crassus plundered Jerusalem. And when he came to the temple, he was confronted by a priest named Eleazar, who was the guardian of the treasury. And rather than surrendering all of Israel's sacred treasures, Eleazar persuaded Crassus to take a single bar of gold worth some 10,000 shekels. In his telling of these events, the Jewish historian Josephus states that the general received the gold from the priest as a ransom for all. The same words that we find in the New Testament. You see, the bar of gold ransomed the other sacred items by serving as a substitute for the entire temple treasury. And in a much more profound way, God accepted the life of Jesus as a payment in our place, a ransom for our sins. 
And consider the costliness of that great redemption. For as costly as it was to redeem Ruth, the price of her redemption is not to be compared with the price of redemption in Jesus Christ. For whereas Boaz endangered his estate, Jesus sacrificed his very body on the cross. And whereas Boaz paid in the currency common to his day, Jesus paid with his own lifeblood. For you know, the scripture says, that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Or again, the scripture says that we have redemption through his blood. You see, Jesus did what no other redeemer could do, and that is pay the full price of our redemption. For since he is the eternal Son of God, his blood is of infinite value. It has enough value in it to pay for all of our sins. In our study next week, we will seek to explain why redemption was such a bloody business. But for the moment, it is sufficient to understand that the price was, in fact, blood, and that Jesus did, in fact, pay it when he died on the cross. I think of that line from Fanny Crosby's great hymn, To God Be the Glory. The line is true, O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood. You see, the grace of God did not come cheap. And when the Scripture says that You were bought at a price. Remember how costly that price was. And if ever you are tempted to take your salvation in Christ for granted, it must be because somehow you have forgotten that you were bought with his own blood. According to the great Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield, there is no one of the titles of Christ which is more precious to Christian hearts than Redeemer. It gives expression not merely to our sense that we have received salvation from him, but also to our appreciation of what it cost him to procure this salvation for us. Redeemer is the name specifically of the Christ of the cross. And whenever we pronounce it, the cross is portrayed before our eyes and our hearts are filled with loving remembrance, not only that Christ has given us salvation, but that he paid a mighty price for it. Now there is one last thing to be said about redemption, and that is this, that in the Bible, redemption is always a romance. Since redemption is the commercial term for salvation, a term that comes from the marketplace, it's easy to think of it as little more than a business transaction. But you know, as far as Boaz was concerned, redemption was far more than a rearrangement of his investment portfolio. It was a matter of the heart. And once Ruth proposed marriage, Boaz behaved like a man suddenly and madly in love. And this is because Ruth's kindness had touched his heart. As soon as she asked him to serve as her redeemer, he said, The Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And what pleased Boaz so much was that Ruth did not marry for youth or for money, but only for covenant love. 
There is a rare and beautiful painting which captures something of this romance between Ruth and Boaz. It comes from an old Bible in the Austrian National Library, an illuminated manuscript from the 13th century. In the painting, Ruth and Boaz lie under a dark sky with sheaves of barley bundled all around them. They lie very chastely at either end of a large flowing blanket, and they are both dressed in red, as if to show that their two hearts beat as one. In the face of Boaz, there is a hint of surprise. Who is this woman who lies at his feet? And yet both of their faces are serene, for they are at peace with God and in love with one another. You see, Boaz responded to Ruth's love with the romance of redemption. He did more than provide for her. He married her and thus entered into an unbreakable covenant of intimate relationship with her. The Bible takes us right up to the threshold of their honeymoon chamber, where we read that Boaz went to Ruth and the Lord enabled her to conceive. It takes us next to the nursery where their son was born and then placed in Naomi's arms. It's all part of the romance of redemption. Boaz did not simply write a check to pay the ransom and then go back to his business. No, when he agreed to be Ruth's redeemer, he undertook marital as well as financial obligations. Once he agreed to marry her, he was really agreeing to share the whole rest of his life with her. And of course, you see that it is the same with redemption in Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus was willing to pay full price to redeem you from your sins shows how much God loves you. Indeed, it shows that your Redeemer is also your lover. The Bible often compares the relationship between Christ and his church to the relationship between a loving husband and a faithful wife. It calls this the mystery of marriage. It says, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will God rejoice over you. The Bible speaks this way to help us understand how deeply and how tenderly and how passionately Jesus loves us. Realize that you cannot receive Jesus as your Savior without also receiving him and loving him as your spouse. And now that you are married to Christ, you no longer belong to yourself. It's always that way with marriage. You are not your own, the Bible says. You were bought at a price. Now that you belong to God by redemption, you must live for him. And so the scripture goes on to say, therefore, honor God. To put it another way, you must glorify God. For you no longer belong to yourself, you belong to your Redeemer. Like everything else in salvation, redemption is all for the glory of God. Our Father, we praise you for this great love, for the fact that redemption is more than the transaction of our salvation, that it is also a sign of your affection for us. And we pray that you would give us that grace which enables us to respond with love of our own through Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.
You're listening to Every Last Word with Bible teacher Dr. Philip Ryken, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Alliance Broadcasting includes the Bible Study Hour with Dr. James Boyce, Every Last Word with Bible Teacher Dr. Philip Ryken, God's Living Word with Pastor the Reverend Richard Phillips, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible featuring Donald Barnhouse. For more information on the Alliance, including a free introductory package for first-time callers, or to make a contribution, please call toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Again, that's 1-800-488-1888. You can also write the Alliance at Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at AllianceNet.org. Ask for your free resource catalog featuring books, audio, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support of this ministry. 